And we're live. Welcome back to another episode. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we've got two returning guests, although one of them you haven't seen since we rebranded, but uh, we got none other than Mr. Terry Mixon and Jeff Cheney, Jay and Cheney. So Terry, can you introduce yourself to everyone living under a rock who doesn't know who you are? I'm Terry Mixon. I write science fiction. I'm a former NASA employee. I also was uh, in the Army in the 101st Airborne Division back in the 80s. I write uh, the Last Hunter series. I've written the Empire of Bones and Imperial Marine Saga as well. That's me. I rescue cats. That's that's the other me. That's the other you. All right. And Jeff, uh, publishing under Jay and Chaney, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Jay and Chaney, uh, as you say, um, I have published about 150 books, many of which have been co-written. Um, for something that I've only written like just on my own, that would be uh, probably what I'm best known for would be Renegade Star. Uh, I've also done the Variant Saga, uh, a couple other books, and then recently The Last Hunter with Terry Mixon here, which is why we're here today, along with Backyard Starship, uh, Sentence to War, Uplink Squadron, um, and many more. You've written and with some before, of the who's who of... Go ahead. Yeah, before this, uh, I was in the Air Force for four years and um, you know, got out with a master's in creative writing uh, under my belt, thanks to the GI Bill and uh, made a go of it as a writer. Big career so change. a big career change. You went from, was it, what'd you do in the Air Force? You fixed planes, right? You were a mechanic? No, no I fixed computers. I was a client systems technician. I knew my, you fixed something. Yeah, my job designation uh, title was 3-1-X-1, uh, 3-1, yeah, what was it? Oh, 3-D-1-X-1. So those who are in the Air Force uh, in the in the tech sphere will probably know that we're it's just help desk. You know, we get tickets and go fix computers. I, I, think it's am, I think it's amusing that the guy that was in the Air Force didn't work on aircraft, and the guy that was in the Army did work on aircraft. Yeah, <laughs> I was a I was a helicopter crew chief. Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, people call it the chair force, and I was in a chair most of the day. So. Just I just walked for, around. Wait for tickets to come in and then go fix those computers. So um, That's yeah. what I did at NASA, so I, I understand. It worked out for you, though. So uh, the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So I found Terry through his books, uh, The Empire Bone Saga, and then his podcast, Dead Robot Society. And if you're interested in writing or listen to writers talk about writing, it's a fun podcast. Check it out. And um, we'll apologize in advance for Paul, but he can't help himself. Um, true, true. He's a nice guy, though. And then as far as how I met Jeff, I think – so I met Terry back in 2015, or I found his books in 2015. And I think I found you through the Renegade Star. It was on sale once, and I stumbled across it. And then I bugged you because I couldn't find the rest of your books. And you're like, shut up already. But that's a good series. So if, you, if you're looking for a quick, fun read, like that's definitely a summer summer read for you. All right. Yeah, I, I don't remember how I met you. I know it, it was, was online, but I can't yeah, Details. We met in person when you in Vegas for the 2018, yeah. but uh, when I first found you, it was through the Renegade Starbucks. Yeah, and I liked it enough that I did a review and I was sending it to you so you could share if you wanted to. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, you've done that a couple of times. 
I, I try to review when I have time books that I really like. Um, so, you know, there's enough negativity out there in the world. Um, but now, uh, Terry, you've already answered these, so we're gonna we're gonna focus these questions on Jeff. But the religion question: Babylon Five, Warehouse Thirteen, or Eureka? I'm mixing it up for you. It's for you, Jeff. Oh, that's for me. Oh, I thought you said Terry. Um, no, he answered before. So, I guess I'm not a I'm not huge into any of those, but uh, I do like Babylon Five. You know, I'm more of a Star Trek guy. I've got my uh, my signed. Sorry, it's reverse back here. My signed Tuvok picture. Okay, yeah, and I don't mind answering the questions again, even though I've done it. I'm a Warehouse Thirteen guy. That's the way it is. Yeah. Well, when we asked you, it was Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly, but we try to mix that up every now yeah. and then. That's much more oh. my speed, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's fair. All right. Then uh, we've got uh, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, or Wheel of Time. Oh, man. Uh, I guess I'd have to say Lord of the Rings now, but I think for a while I would have put Game of Thrones up at the top, like before the final two seasons. Uh, okay. I, I was like super into Game of Thrones for like five years, <laughs> and uh, I was reading all the books, all that stuff, watching the show every week. Battlestar Galactica too. I mean, I was addicted to that when it was coming out. Oh, that was good. Yeah. I was hooked in every week, you know, when I was in college, I was sitting there like every Friday, there was no, like I, I couldn't afford to, I couldn't afford the, you know, the, uh, like the TiVo recording devices or anything. So I was, I had to watch it live and, uh, man, I was there every Friday night instead of going out and having a social life. I was watching BSG. <laughs> <laughs> it's Lord well, of the Rings worked for out me. for you in the yeah. end. All right. And then we wanted to ask one because you, Terry, answered the other one last time. Hercules, Xena, or Beastmaster for fantasy? Are you asking me that one? Yeah. Then I'm taking both Hercules and Xena. Okay, they did spin off one, spin off the other. So that's that's it works. It's yeah. It's I want both, man. Those were awesome shows. Uh, yeah, they were. Yeah, I think I think overall I liked Hercules better, but I still watch Xena like every chance I got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So again, uh, Terry, you've answered all of these about your growing up as a nerd, but Jeff, you have not. So, um, what was your first love? Sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy, actually. Um, so the first book I ever got to read for fun was *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*. I went to a very religious school when I was in middle school, and they did not allow sci-fi or fantasy books in their little library which was like a room the size of my office here with just books in it. They were mostly religious books, uh, but they had the line of which in the wardrobe for obvious reasons. And I found it and I picked it up and I'm like, Oh man, something different. So I read the first, like, I think I read every book they had, which was like the first three, man, I was, I was like hooked in. Uh, so they had the line of which in the wardrobe, Prince Caspian. And I believe the, um, uh, the magician's apprentice, I think that's the prequel book and I read them in order and I think I, I may have even started with the magician's apprentice and oh my god I was I was like this is amazing and so after that uh I I kept looking around for like other stuff like that and then I, I couldn't find anything because you know Christian school so I went home and I started watching tv that's when I got into little kid brain could like you know comprehend 
uh, Star Trek and uh, started, you know, started getting into that more. Got into TNG, DS9, Voyager when that came out. Uh, I went back and got into Star Wars retroactively. Um, I went to Russia when I was uh, 14 and spent a semester of school there. And uh, I'm sorry, I went to China and spent a semester of school. I went to Russia and spent the summer as a foreign exchange student. And when I was in Russia, they had uh, no English movies that I could get except for the Star Wars trilogy. And that's how I watched Star Wars for the first time. <laughs> we watched it repeatedly over and over and over again. And it was the by the time I left after like two and a half months, I had memorized um, the first two movies, like all the dialogue. So Terry, you went to Russia when you worked for NASA. I'm curious what years you both were there. Did they overlap any coincidentally? I was there in 99 and 2000. Uh, yeah, that's about right. That's about right. I think, I think it was like, it, it wasn't quite that time. That was when I was in China, it was 2000. Um, I think I was in Russia in 99 and 98 over okay. the summer. Were you and in we, Moscow? Yeah, I was in Moscow uh, the second time. And the first time I think I was in St. Petersburg. I was in Moscow a total of six months over those two two journeys. Mm. Yeah. There you go. Interesting, interesting experience. That is truth. Yeah. Did, did you at least get to try all the, the, the unique foods that you wouldn't normally see? Uh, I can tell you a story uh, if you're sure. But I don't know how like how safe like, you know, if, if any kids watch this, but. Well, they've been warned now. Mom and dad get your kids out of the room. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. Okay, so so I was like, you know, I was like 14 when I went to Russia, and um, I stayed with this guy who was like a music producer, right? And um, and his mom, his mom was the English teacher, and it was, it's, you know, she's the one that signed up for the foreign exchange thing. Uh, but he was like 35 and had like, you know, these little these little like white rapper kids because that's Russia, you know, and uh, and they were, you know, I met a bunch of them. And he, he took me to, uh, he'd, he'd take me around town and he's like, you got to try this. And he'd tell me in his broken English. And then one day he's like, we're going to go to a club. I'm like, okay, cool. Take me to a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I'm like 14, you know, never seen anything like this before. You know, I'm raised and I was raised in a very, you know, conservative uh, household in the South. And you know, so he takes me to this place and I was like, oh my God, like this feels wrong, but I didn't say anything. So I just kept, you know, went with it. And then this girl propositioned me and she's like, $100, 100 US dollars. And then she's like, uh, 150 for me and friend. And I was like, no. no <laughs> and then I went, I, I went and found the guy again and he's like, oh, you talked to my friend? And I was like, you know her? He's like, yeah, I offered, I offered to pay. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> so that happened. And that was in St. Petersburg. And I was just like, man, Russia is crazy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that there was, that was a cultural, sh a culture shock thing. And then uh, when I went to Red Square, we went to Lenin's tomb and I walked inside yeah. and there's just a guy with a Kalishnikov sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is so crazy. Was yeah. it like a guard at the tomb? Yeah, with a, with a Kalishnikov gun just standing there mm -hmm. like this. And I was like, 
You don't if see you that. wandered around Moscow, um, you probably weren't old enough to wander around Moscow when you were there. But I spent a lot of time walking around and seeing the city, and you see a lot of armed police with the Kalashnikovs. Yeah, it's it's very different. You know, I thought Russia would be just like the United States, but like maybe like ten or twenty years behind. But no, it's very different. It's like, yeah, I I just I didn't expect it. The same thing in China. You know, I mean, when I went to China, it's not like it is now. They were even like more regressed technologically. You would go like I think I was I was near Shanghai, but I wasn't in Shanghai. We just would go there occasionally. Um, but we were in this like semi big city, and we drove maybe thirty minutes out of the city one day. And like the people I was staying with, like they had money because they signed up for this program and they wanted to host an American, which at the time in China that was a big deal. That was like a status symbol. So they had like an actual toilet. Right. And then most other places would have like a ceramic hole in the floor. Like that was considered like a good toilet, but they had an American toilet because they love the West. So then we leave the city and we go out to see their family in this little village. And like I said, 30, 45 minute drive. Right. We get out there and there's people using like an actual hole in the ground with an open, you know, open door commode i guess uh yeah disgusting and the you know the homes are like broken down and everything i felt like i was in africa again because i'd been to africa when i was 13 and um and that is like you know third world you know that's like people living in huts and stuff this is china and i'm walking into a village and it feels like africa but 30 minutes away is a modern city and these people's relatives live here. So I walk into this house and there's like, you know, just, it's almost like a tin, you know, what, what do they call them? Like a shanty house. Um, right. You know what I mean? Like those Hoover mm -hmm. houses. So we walk into there and there's a little kid playing a Game Boy and wearing a t-shirt with like Pepsi on it. I've never seen anything like it since, except in like National Geographic pictures. But that juxtaposition of like the modern versus the old, that really for a long time sort of defined China from what I've learned since then, because I was so young, I didn't know. But um, apparently they've developed that whole area now. So it's like all modern and stuff. But that I mean, that was like 25 years ago. Just crazy. When I was at the uh, Russian Space Control Center, I went to they had American style toilets on the American side. But I, I found out the hard way that I went to the Russian side and went to the men's room. They also have the, the squat toilets there. Mm. That's what they had in Iraq, too, for a lot of the, the local buildings. So do you think your time overseas influences when you write? I mean, this is questionable. Oh, yeah. Later, but. Yeah. I mean, I think it influences everything you do, right? Like if you travel the world and you see other cultures and you realize that, like, America has it really good. Um, compared to other places, not all places, obviously, but a lot of places that I went to, uh, it was a big culture shock as a kid, as a teenager, you know, going to Europe, it's not like that, right? Like you go to the UK, you go to France, you go to Italy, it's fun, it's touristy. You go to other places though, like Africa, and you're just like, oh my God, it's like, it's, it's so different. It's almost overwhelming and it's a shock to the system because especially for someone who's young like that like when I, I was 13 when i went to africa 
and, and it was for a, a missionary trip, you know, because family was very religious. So I went over there and we built a school and I had to, uh, you know, basically go like days without showering because there was no running water. We had to boil our, all our water. We had to put a roof on a, on a church and build sidewalks and stuff. And uh, not having these amenities available, stuff we take for granted like that, uh, running water, being able to shower every day, uh, that was a shock to the system. So now when I write stuff and, and, um, and I think about how other cultures would be, it definitely helps shape things, uh, especially when you're talking about visiting like poorer planets and, you know, the outer rim. And like you see in Star Wars, when they go to Tatooine, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. That this far away from civilization, I could see how this would happen. Yeah. So what was your first memory of engaging in, in uh, speculative fiction? Was it reading the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe series at school? Or was yeah. there something first? No, that was it. Uh, my mom read me Pilgrim's Progress as a kid, which I was like really into because it was a fantasy story. Um, you know, it was heavily Bible influenced, obviously. But something that was pure fantasy that wasn't trying to tell you like moral lessons with like, like so obviously from the Bible um, was the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And uh, that... I didn't even think like, oh, this has a religious connotation to it. I didn't know about any of that stuff that it was attached to that because I was just a kid. And, you know, what it did do is it got my imagination running and it got me exposed to this stuff. And I think from there I was like, oh, man, going to another world, like through a portal. And, you know, I didn't know what all this was, like the subgenres it was applying to in modern publishing, like, you know, portal fiction and stuff. I just thought. This is a fun story and it really got my mind racing. The first science fiction story I ever actually read was um, the first Halo book, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah. That's a good one though. It's yeah, it, it's, it's good as a first book to read retroactively. You know, you're going go back uh, now with what I've read because right after that, that's, that's kind of what got me invested in the genre from like a literary perspective. So my friend was like, if you like The Fall of Reach, you should go read um, Ender's Game. Because it's, you know, it takes a lot of those ideas from Ender's Game. And it does. And so I went back and I read Ender's Game after that. And that's the book that really hooked me. And I'm like, I want to be a writer. I want to write science fiction. So in order to be able to do that effectively, I knew. I was like, I got to go back and read everything. So I went back and read Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, everything that I could find. For okay. me, I'm pretty sure that The Hobbit was the first thing that, that got me into speculative fiction. But for science fiction, once I started shopping in used bookstores, this was when I was in middle school. So it was in the 70s, you know, way back when. I was finding all these used books from that were 20 or 30 years, even older than that or more. And a translated German series called Perry Rodin that they Ace Books did 112 issues of uh, is what pretty well dragged me into the science fiction sphere. Very, very pulpy space opera. Okay. So what is it about speculative fiction as a genre that you love, Jeff? I mean, I guess everybody's got their own reason. Uh, but for me, it's just that otherworldliness, you know, real life is so boring sometimes and uh, it kind of sucks. Sometimes you got wars happening, you got 
you know, I don't like watching the news much anymore. I stay up to I up to date on things because I feel like you kind of obligated to stay informed to a point. But man, it's depressing. And uh, you know, I don't want to read military thrillers. I don't want to play Call of Duty. I don't want to read about like you know political thrillers or anything like that. Even though I like them sometimes, I don't want to read them all the time. So I, you know, I get really into um, the escapism of a fantasy world. And I think for me growing up, you know, I didn't have like the best childhood in the world. And so that probably contributed to it, like wanting to escape. And uh, it's the same reason I watched X-Men and Power Rangers and, you know, stuff like that as a kid. You get really into that. I think that helps now. It's like, you know, in hindsight, that sort of paved the way for being into this stuff uh, because, you know, the X-Men went into space and Power Rangers went into space. And, um, you know, I would watch Superman and Batman and, you know, all these fantastical characters like most kids. And I, I think that I got on that train and I just never got off. Like that's essentially what Terry and I are, right? Like all three of us, we're just grown kids. <laughs> Yeah. I actually come to being a writer as a disgruntled reader. I didn't start writing until a little bit more than a decade ago when I finally got tired of not being able to read the kind of stories that I wanted to read. And I said, well, I just read one crappy book too many. And I said, I could write better than this. And a friend of mine sent me a manuscript. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a novel. And I said, well, damn it. I can write a novel. I can do this. And it's been a long, hard journey. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, but here I am. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the, like, it's an interesting question to ask people, like, why did you write book? Why did you get into writing? If you were to ask Tolkien, I think he said, um, no one was writing what I wanted to read. And it seems like for a lot of writers, that tends to be the case. Um, they have an idea for something and they keep looking for something that's going to appeal to that you know, that desire they have, but no one's doing it. You know, uh, Ready Player One came out. And, uh, you know, before that, you had a couple of anime that were appealing to the lit RPG crowd. That was their only fix. And so finally, these fans, they were like, I'm just going to write something. <laughs> and then lit RPG exploded. Uh, I mean, that's just me guessing, but that's what it seems like. Uh I'm sure a lot of sci-fi writers just wanted to read more sci-fi books and yeah. thought they could do better. A lot of what I write is definitely homage to the things that I've read over 40, 50 years of, of being a reader in this particular genre of science fiction space opera. I like writing and retouching the emotional touchstones of my youth. And it's found an audience. It's found people that they want to touch those same kind of feelings and I enjoy writing those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that the same thing happened to me when I read Ender's Game. I was like, man, this like made me feel things. I want to do that for somebody else. And um, even before that, I don't know about you, Terry, uh, or you, JR, but I was really into anime as a teenager. And I was watching like Outlaw Star and uh, Cowboy Bebop and things like that. So my first space opera book heavily influenced by cowboy bebop and outlaw star and um you know trigun things like that so 
you know, we are what the sum of our experiences and influences. So I think uh, more than more than most people in this uh, genre, I was influenced by like video games and anime, uh, things that were released in the 90s, uh, like old old JRPGs, like Xenogears, which was like a huge game for me growing up, uh, along with Lunar and uh, different sci-fi fantasy uh, video games that most people haven't played. Like some people have, obviously, but like, you know, not a lot. They're, they're JRPGs. Um, and I grew up and I was like, man, I really want to read some books like this, but no one's writing this, like Terry said. And so I sat down one day and I wrote you know, my first book and I drew from those things. Like um, I drew from Fallout and Ender's Game, smashed those basic concepts together and then came up with something new. And that was my first book. Okay. I had a I reviewer, just... or a, a, one of my readers touched base with me just the other day and said that that he had read so many things that people try to do the same kind of, of you know, stories that we're writing with Last Hunter, where it's a recovered piece of ancient technology, that old abandoned battleship that's being brought to war. He said so many people have wrote those, but you're doing it in a way that that hits all the memories that I had of it in different ways than these other people are doing it. And I really love what you're doing. That's cool. I, uh, I just realized, because I realized, Terry, that I found your book. So when I first got my head injury, I, I couldn't read. So when I was in college, I kept saying, when I graduate college, I'm going to read a book just because I want to read it and not because the damn professor assigned it. Because, you know, there's that grind of reading the, the most miserable stuff out there because your professor likes it. And it's not always the most entertaining. And then when I got back from Iraq, I was finally done with school, but I couldn't read because the, the print was giving me migraines. And then the Kindle came around and the doctor's like, let me you know, get the, the VA to pay for this for you because you can magnify the print. And so I found your book in 2015 through the TBI clinic. I didn't realize you had just started writing then because you. I, yeah, I just looked it up. You caught me right at the beginning. And, yeah, I didn't realize it had been, been there the whole time. I, I thought for sure you'd been writing way longer than that. I had been writing way longer than that. I started writing and publishing um, erotica probably about four or five years before that and was making money on that and for a while until I switched to writing science fiction because I'd much rather write that. Okay. Um, so we've talked a bit about how your writing um, transitioned from being fan to, to writing it, but were there any real life experience that you think shape you as a, as a storyteller, Jeff? I would say my time in the air force really taught me how like rank structure works and, uh, uh, like how troops treat each other, uh, what that dynamic is like. Uh, I, we put out a lot of military sci-fi now, so that's really helped a lot. Um, I learned how guns work, you know, <laughs> no idea before, uh, learned a lot just, you know, from, from, you know, handling one. Um, it opened my eyes up to a lot of relationships that um, have really shaped this, my business, uh, a lot of my books, my art director, he was in basic training with me. Um, you know, he edited all of my early stuff for free as uh, you know, cause I was broke and poor and I was trying to make it as a writer. So I'd say like the military had a massive impact on me um, growing up in the South and then moving to a big city, uh, having those two very different cultures, you know, back to back like that, being able to contrast the two, that has had a big influence on how I write. And, uh, you know, 
knowing who my audience is and uh and like you know avoiding certain certain things all that had a big influence on me and yeah i mean it's hard to it's hard to really like nail down one particular thing i'd say like just a series of life choices events and places i feel like i've lived in like five states all over the country and i've been to multiple countries for months at a time and so i'm sure it's all had a massive impact just cumulatively okay being in the army definitely helped writing the military side of science fiction because it does give you a sense of of how military treats one another how those sort of things work even though i wasn't in the combat arms it gave me enough grounding in what it's like to be in the military to write something that actually sounds like someone could be in the military and then working almost two decades at nasa in the mission control center also gives me a, a totally different aspect of writing science fiction and dealing with all of those professionals and all of those really critical mission oriented things. It, it definitely helped. Yeah. I, I would just, I would just add um, that, you know, JR, if you look at, at my, uh, my backlist and this ongoing series we have, you'll notice that there's sort of a running theme with who I choose to co-write this stuff with uh, Terry Mixon has a history of like naval combat in space you know ship to ship combat we had a big discussion on it when we uh, first started talking about what kind of story we wanted to tell and um you don't want to take somebody like terry and put them you know writing uh, about like planes and jets you know or uh marines you know you want to put them where they're best suited where they mm -hmm. have that experience and you know, I'm sure Terry would have done a, a fantastic job on those other concepts, um, but, you know, he's best suited, in my opinion, on writing naval combat because that he's written like well, how many books, Terry, like 30 books now? Still something close to that, counting the co-written stuff. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. lost track. I what You've made it as a writer when you can't count how many books you've written anymore. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah a couple dozen at least, right? So you have somebody like Terry doing that. So yeah, of course it's going to fit with the last hunter. That's na it's naval space combat for the most part. Uh, then you look at Jonathan P. Brazy, who I've been writing with now for over a year, and he's writing about Marines because he's an ex-Marine with tons of combat experience. So he brings that real authenticity to those combat scenes that I myself alone could not do. I'd have to do leagues of research uh, just to be able to match what he inherently knows. You know, so um, Jason Onsbach, I've worked with him and he's he comes from he was he didn't serve in the military, but he's been writing this stuff for years. And so, you know, him, working with him on Wayward Galaxy, he brings that expertise. So uh, everybody has something valuable to bring to it. It's just about finding what best suits them. Like I, I just released a book with Chris Kennedy called Uplink Squadron. And Chris is an ex um, bombardier. You know, and he spent 20 years flying planes. So, of course, it makes sense to give him a, a book that has the main character flying jets. Uh, but, yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind is like finding writers with the right experience to write for that audience and also deliver something that even the most nitpicky of people who did that for 20 years are going to look at and be like, clearly this guy was there or he's at least done his due diligence. And Terry yeah. is the guy. So, uh, Jeff, have you ever, when you write, since you, you did serve, do you ever draw on people you knew when you were in the Air Force? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I've put a few people in my books. Uh, I never, I never put people I don't like in there. Uh, I just don't write about them. I'm not vindictive like that. I saw this meme one time about somebody who, uh, you know, he's, it's like, oh, I'll kill you off in my books if you mistreat me or whatever. Um, I don't do that. I just put them out of my head and, and move on. So I only put like people I like in there. Uh, my first series, I did that a lot. So I put my friend Sarah in there. I put my buddy James in there, but he's called John. Um, and then I kind of put myself in there as a kid, as the lead character, but over time that kind of morphs, you know, cause you're watching these kids grow up and you have to change every character eventually becomes a little bit of you. So, but yeah, I've done that. I've what, killed off JR like three times now, I think. <laughs> yeah. You could do better though. I, I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't bloody uh, enough. I actually asked him to do it a bloody gore, gory death. So he was like, I'll make it clean and neat. And he zapped me, I think. What was it? I vaporized bomb? him with plasma. Yeah. There was nothing left. So there you what go. You son of a. So, um, but do you ever draw on people you knew in the military when you write, Terry? I draw on elements of people that I knew. I don't actually put the people themselves in there. I, I find interesting quirks about the ones that I've met in the past that are useful for helping to tell a story. And I'll put those in. Yeah, what's what's interesting is uh, I don't think anybody I knew in the military was like interesting enough to make a whole <laughs> character out of. Yeah, uh, everybody has their moments, and you like certain people. Uh, obviously, I I really connected with uh, my buddy, who's now our art director, um, and he is a bit of a character, but it's not he's not he's not the guy that you want to read about in a book. You know, he's like really contemplative and smart and methodical and quiet. And that doesn't really lead to like an action heavy character that's like really, really interesting as, a, you know, in a, in a war story. Uh, but there are elements of his intellect that I've taken and used in other characters, like things that he said. And, you know, I'll like use that in dialogue at some point. Uh, but yeah, so it happens. Same, same as what Terry was saying. So we've talked about things from the, the creative side as you create content as a veteran, but let's talk about things as the consumer of products. So do, uh, do you feel like your time in uniform affects the way you engage with movies and books as a veteran? Oh when yeah. You, when you read about it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Um, I can't watch an air force movie now without being like, well, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I remember the big, the best example of this that I tell people is like how ranking works, you know, and like promotions. It's so boring in real life compared to how they make it portrayed and how they portray it in movies. Uh, I, I'll never forget Transformers, right? There's this character. Uh, I can't remember who he is, uh, but he's like the main human guy in the first three movies who's like in the military, in the Air Force. And I think he starts out as a staff sergeant, which would be like an E5, right? So at the end of the third, or at the beginning of the third movie, I think he's like a chief master sergeant, you know, and this takes place over like a couple of years. And he's, or I think he, he ranked up like over the course of one movie or like between two movies, he, he ranked up three times. And I'm like, well, that's not a thing that happens. And they, I think they even said it'd been like two years, right? So minimum, you can only rank up every two years in the Air Force. And that's like if 
you are, uh, I mean, past a certain rank, you know, the past rank, you know, past E4, it has to be, it's every two years you, you get up for promotion and you have to pass like a test and everything and all this stuff. So you, you kind of have to logic around that and say like, oh, well, he was promoted somehow in like wartime or whatever, you know, battlefield promotion and something like that. But they never say that. He's just, yeah, I was promoted. And now I'm like chief master sergeant. <laughs> <It's> like, okay, <laughs> why are you on the ground fighting as a chief master sergeant? That's crazy. Doesn't make any sense. That's right up there with Star Trek. And the uh, the captain is always in the, the uh, first officer always on their yeah. way. Like, <laughs> oh, no, you protect those people. Yeah. Uh, so so what about you, Terry? Do, do you think your time in the Army affects the way you engage with content as a consumer? To a little degree, it does. I try to set aside realism, and there's there's only been one movie that, that hit so close to my military career that I just ripped it apart for all the things that it got wrong, and John that Wick. was Firebirds. <laughs> it was a, a movie with Tommy Lee Jones and Nicolas Cage in it, that was all about um, helicopter warfare and helicopter gunships. And yeah, I never saw that. I'm gonna have to watch that now. And I was like, oh yeah, that thing's wrong. Oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's wrong. Okay, that's right. All right, yeah, but that's the only one that's ever really hit right in my in my breadbasket of what I know. The rest of them, I try to give them a little bit of 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 leeway for artistic endeavors. You know what? You know you know what got it surprisingly accurate for the time. What's that? Stargate. I remember, yeah. yeah, at least for the Air Force, right? Like the ranks and everything and the uniforms and the details. Um, they, they didn't get some stuff, but there was like, you know, I went back and rewatched it after I was in the Air Force for a few years because I'm like, oh, now I'll understand a lot of these references and like how stuff is working. And yeah, I mean, a lot of it is pretty accurate. Um, even the promotion ceremony, I think there's a promotion ceremony at one point and I'm like, oh yeah, look at that. That's cool. Uh, yeah, so you know, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. TV shows get stuff wrong all the time, so it was nice to have something like that. At one point in time, I used to think they had to get it wrong so they didn't get in trouble with the government. Like, oh, their uniforms wrong on purpose, and now I know they just suck. Like, no, there's no on purpose. They just messed up. <laughs> they just don't want to spend the time and money to to be as authentic as they can be, and it sometimes inhibits the story they want to tell. Okay, well, yeah. then. So normally we would ask the fandom questions because those are Doc's favorite, but we got a little sidetracked talking about Russia and that was a lot more fun for me. So we're going to jump right to uh, getting into the story in just a second. But um, Jeff, so other than some of the ones you mentioned, were there any of your main series that you wanted to, to hit on real quick that you're you're known for that you didn't cover in the introduction or was that pretty much the Renegade Star and, and the ones you listed, the big ones? Um, can you repeat the last part of that? So you mentioned that the Renegade Star and you mentioned the um, this, the Last Hunter as your big, um, some of your big stuff. And you did some spinoffs with the Renegade Star. Were there other uh, flagship series that you've written that you wanted to sort of tell us about real quick or? Yeah. So um, I think, you know, Last Hunter is probably um, in our top three series right now, um, along with Sentence to War and um <clears throat> we got upland squadron going and then i would backyard say backyard starship backyard starship is our is our big series right it's probably the biggest one we've got um you know a guy in um i believe it's iowa inherits a farm from his grandfather and then discovers that there's a hidden spaceship in his barn basically and um discovers that his grandfather was like 
basically a galactic patrolman, right? He's a, he's a peacekeeper. Um, so eventually goes off into space and just discovers like all this crazy stuff that's going on. And, you know, the earth is like kind of this like nobody planet and uh, the greater galaxy is out there and there's all these insane things happening. So, and he's got this, this ridiculous heritage that, um, you know, he begins to tap back into. So I do recommend that series if you're just looking for a really fun space opera story, but it's not male sci-fi. Uh, the other stuff I mentioned, those are all male sci-fi. So we do okay. both. Okay. What about you, Terry? What is your claim to fame? Let's get the Reader's Digest of your body of work. Empire of Bones, Imperial Marine Saga, and uh, the La the uh, Humanity Unlimited Saga. All right. Well, those were all good. I've read all of those. Um, and I would be reading more of the uh, Empire of Bones, but somebody sidetracked him with a new series. Yeah, I can't imagine <laughs> where all my writing time is going right now. All right. Well, we are going to um show the oh crap it didn't do it all right so i'm gonna pull the cover up and then while i download this because it didn't keep terry is the sponsor but for whatever reason uh zencast or zencaster uh Streamyards deleted your 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 commercial so i'm gonna have to pull it back up but in the meantime we're gonna look at this glorious cover and uh where did the art come from because i this stands out like you don't see a lot of art like this that has both the spaceship and the the person on it it's generally one or the other Jeff will have to answer that one. So you remember earlier, I mentioned that we have an art director. His name's Rob. He sketches all of our covers and then we send it off to a studio that we have a contract with. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're known for Halo and uh, Mass Effect, Magic the Gathering type stuff. Um, but, you know, they produce all of our, most of our covers. You know, there's a few that they don't, do but we get about three or four from them a month and he does all of the uh you know the sketches so that design is his and the uh the detailed artwork that you see that's hand painted by a designer or by an artist yeah you can see it in the like the details if you look onto the right you see the the ring uh looks like a space station of some sort and then you can see it on the gold filigree of the uh, the officer's uniform. It's definitely, I can see that anime inspiration you were talking about in the uniform. It looks very, I don't know. It looks like what Chris Winder was showing me with the flagship Yamamoto when he was trying to convince me that anime was the stuff I should be watching. Actually, when I designed, I'm the one that came up with the uniform. The idea, this uniform is nothing like the uniform that I had in my mind, but it's it fits the same theme. I was thinking of... Uh, you know, the old Star Blazers battleship Yamamoto when I made the old style Navy uniforms that they had to wear. Those were definitely in my mind. I mean, I could see some of the resemblance to it, even with this, if this isn't exactly on point. I do like it. And it is dark, but there's just enough bright with the with the, the font and the lettering to pop. So it definitely draws your attention. And uh, I went ahead and I went to when these first came out, you were in some of the top 100 trending books over on Amazon. So congratulations for the bestseller status while it lasted. Thank you. I don't know if it's still there, but when I looked, I did, you do the thumbnail test to see if it stands out and even, you know, pixelated and compressed, the cover still jumps out at you, which is, it's hard to do that. That takes skill. You need to admit something though, JR, your, your judgment on covers is, is suspect because you're colorblind. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, that's not like I keep it a secret. It's a running joke. Someone once told me if they drank every time I said I was colorblind, they would have no liver. So. It was amusing because you, you 
were talking about how one of my covers were, and I'm like, you're colorblind. Why are you why are you criticizing my cover? <laughs> uh, to answer your question, JR, uh, yeah, this book is still in the top 100 in uh, every single category that it's in. Outstanding. You're an overachiever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I believe in the top 50 for all of them, too. But, yeah, it's, it's doing really well. I mean, it's been out since February, and it's accumulated over 2,000 ratings on Amazon. That's impressive. All right, so we're going to take a second where we pause and we shamelessly shill for the man, <clears throat> Terry, uh, and then we're going to jump in and we're going to talk exclusively about this book. The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire. Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half-sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon, now available at Amazon.com. All right, so we're back with uh, with Terry and, and Jeff, and we're going to be talking about from here on out The Last Hunter. So how did you guys come up with the, the premise for this series? Like, obviously, it started with, hey, let's work together, because um, you sort of hinted at that. But how did you come up with the concept as it is? When Jeff and I started working together... He asked me to make some some couple of paragraph pitches for various ideas. And this was one of three I think I sent to him. I couldn't even tell you what the other two are at this point. I've already forgotten them. I'm sure they were winners too. Yeah, typically the, the process for me is I'll ask for three to five pitches. And um, based on whichever one I think will do the best, we walk through it. And if it seems like a good fit, for uh, the writer, um, that's also a factor in it, like I was saying earlier. Uh, we'll go with that one. So, you know, Terry is, uh, you know, I approached him to write because I was like, I really like your stuff. Uh, I really like, you know, you're, you've co-written before, so you have that background. Uh, I think that, you know, we had an opening and I was like, I think that we could, you know, make some waves together. Are you interested? And he was like on board right away. And just he could tell his mind started racing with ideas. So, you know, Jeff, you've hinted at a lot of your your writing is inspired by anime. So were there any other than the uniforms from Battleship Yamamoto, were there any other anime inspirations for this series? Uh, no, not for this one in particular. Uh, this more like more so BSG inspired, you know, just from a conceptual standpoint. Um, like the uh, the older aging captain with uh, you know the uh, his you know the the star cruiser that had more of an influence just conceptually, but I mean Terry can tell you specifically if he drew anything from it, but that's where I was coming from. I was never much of an anime person when I was younger because I didn't have access to it. I was I was too. It wasn't like the internet existed when I was a kid. I couldn't go find all these things that I didn't know about. So there wasn't a whole lot of anime inspiration in this, but it did touch on a lot of things you're talking about. I was a big fan of the original Battlestar Galactica series. 
campy as it was, and that definitely played a role in the way some of this is framed. Okay. So what would you say in either one of, from here on, either one of you can answer, you know, as, as you know, your experience with this current project, but what do you think the 30 second elevator pitch for the last hunter would be? God, I'm horrible at elevator pitches. So I will definitely throw that at Jeff. <laughs> um, an aging captain is forced to, uh, to take up command again and fight off an invasion force uh, with a lone ship. I would say that's like, you know, that's the elevator pitch. Okay. Uh, what do you think makes this series special in all of the crowded field that is this science fiction? What makes the last hundred series stand out? I think that one of the things I like about it is the wide variety of characters you've got on it. You've got a, a Commodore in command that is a senior officer that's never commanded a fleet or something like that. He's been a cruiser captain. And now he's having to step in the role of making things work with very limited supplies, very limited crew, and having to fight to get every bit of things that he needs to fight the alien invasion without any help whatsoever. And yeah. has everything from, from recreationists, reenactors, to gaming people that, that know the old style controls of this ship where his people don't really know that much. Yeah, it's, I really like Yeah. I really like the reenactor uh, angle in this, like the idea of going back and, uh, you know, we drew from like real life, like, you know, the, uh, the Confederacy stuff, uh, Confederacy reenactments and everything like that. And Terry has a, you know, he has some experience um, in that area. So when he, he mentioned that was his idea. And when he mentioned it to me, I'm like, I love everything about this. Like, let's double down on this and uh, you know, kind of, lean into it. Um, and I think that's been a big, a big help because, you know, you're essentially saying that regular people who, who really like this stuff, you know, fans of these things can actually be useful. And I think that most of us can relate to that because like, what if Captain Kirk beamed down and was suddenly like, Hey, you know, it's, it's kind of like, um, what was that spoof movie? Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. Quest. Kind of like that, yeah. So uh, that that was kind of my feeling on it, and I and I I think it's a big reason Galaxy Quest took off because it's you know it's like what if this was real and uh, and like you had to use your experience for real. Um, it's just fun. That's so fun is a good reason to write a story. So were you guys fans of Galaxy Quest? Because I did notice some of that themes based on the description before you started writing this. I enjoyed the movie. Um, I don't know that I, I, I tap into lots of things unconsciously, so I can't tell you where some of the things come from. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think a lot of ideas come from uh, different places, like the same idea come from different places, but I'm a huge galaxy, uh, um, uh, a, hu a huge fan of Star Trek. I almost said Galaxy's Edge. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with being a fan of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan of that too. But you know, I'm a, I, I'm a big Star Trek guy. I'm a big Battlestar Galactica guy, and um, you just don't see a lot of good stuff like that anymore. Because um, that's all naval, you know, like old Star Trek and BSG. That's like naval fighting, and you in space. Uh, the original Star Trek show was based on submarines, and 
you know, yeah, space marines are fun and like you get on the ground and you shoot people and there's like a big, you know, frantic battle in the dirt and that's cool. That's awesome. But I don't want that every time. You know, I don't want steak for dinner every night. <laughs> Got to go get some tacos sometimes. True tacos. I think I drew a lot <laughs> of my love for space warfare from reading David Weber novels with Honor Harrington. Yeah, yeah, he's the, like he's like the only guy that I can think of that's like really still doing it, you know, from uh, these old school writers. So, on a scale of like I don't know, Stargate SG One to uh, Grimdark Battlestar Galactica, how campy is this series? I would not say that it's campy. It's not okay. grimdark, but it's it's not meant to be funny. But it's meant okay. to have people that have. You know, there's there's positive things that happen in this story. There is hope that is in this story. I I don't believe in writing stories that don't have hope. Okay. So I, I there's nothing wrong with campy either. For the record, I love the cheesy B grade movies. Those are some of the most entertaining things I've I watched. So I was just so. Do you deal with like you know? For instance, in some of the the Star Trek, uh, Star Wars, they never seem to run out of bullets, right? And they always just you know, Bob dies on the field. They just leave all of his equipment where in real life, you're like, you know, we might need his boots even, you know, like let's take his shit. He doesn't need it anymore. So how, how obviously it's not grimdark, but how gritty do you get in the series? They're having to fight for weapons. They, they're on an old battleship that mostly doesn't work. That is mostly unarmed. And so they have to fight every step of the way to get more firepower because they are outclassed the entire time. Okay. So the, um, I noticed that you got, uh, Jeffrey Kafer to narrate it. So that's, um, was that intentional or did it just happen to get assigned to him? How did you end up with him? He's narrated some of my books too. So I'm a little biased. I like his stuff. That Jeff handled that. And so I'll let him answer that. Um, you, did you ask how I got Jeffrey Kafer involved? Yeah. Was that intentional? Like you said, Hey, I think he's the voice for this or did it just happen to be uh, he had just done Backyard Starship, I believe, and um, we had already gotten him on Sentence to War. So, you know, I really just picked him because he'd done a good job on those two. And I was like, you know, I've got this new series here, and I think he'd be a good fit for this, too. Um, can you read it and tell me what you think? And he really liked it, so we, we got him on board. He has that sort of authoritarian... Mm -hmm. Uh, like that voice of authority and experience that you would have. Voice, yeah. Yeah, in something like this, like he sounds like this character would be in real life. So um, it really works. Um, I would say he's he's a better fit for this than uh, some of the other stuff we've had, just because of the age of the character. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a great narrator. Absolutely. And uh, if you haven't checked out his other works, you should. Um, he's he's a he's good at what he does. So. All right, so The Last Hunter, which tropes do you feel like this story hits the best? There are a lot of tropes that it touches on. And I think that the one that it hits the most is you're fighting for stakes. This is, this is another one of those fights to save humanity. Because if they don't win this fight, no matter how difficult it is, the consequences are unimaginable. And so that's the biggest trope in this. And they do have a lot of space combat, a lot of, of doing those space 
oriented things. And those are the things that I think that it mainly touches on. Jeff probably sees other things that are in there though. No, I mean, I pretty much agree. Um, I think that if you're looking for, you know, real heroes who um, get stronger over time and get more experienced and um, better at what they're doing, still obviously rising stakes and such, um, that's the kind of stuff that I like to put out. I don't like um, heroes that are boring. I don't like stories that stagnate. Um, these are adventure stories, you know, like um, I hate to call them pulp you know, books, but essentially that's kind of like the, uh, the 60s and 70s sci-fi era, the golden age of sci-fi back then. Um, that's more what we're hearkening back to, um, where people are going on big adventures and, uh, you know, everybody plays it safe now. So a Star Wars movie comes out and it's just a rehash of the, of the you know, the original trilogy or whatever. Um, tying back into the stuff that they know works. Like we're going to things that we grew up on and re kind of reinventing the wheel as much as we can. And I think giving, giving the feeling of adventure that we liked as a kid watching this stuff. Um, but it's stuff that not a lot of people are really tapping into anymore, unless they're major IPs. Um, One of the things about this series that I think is important is every book reveals something new that changes everything that you thought you knew. It opens more of the, the setting, more of the background, and it introduces even new stakes that you have to go ahead and move forward to. There's no going back. Constantly changing the status quo and um, raising the stakes um, and taking risks, you know, with, with the stories while also having a lot of fun, you know, fun adventures. That's, I think at the end of the day, that's what, I want to read and it's what I enjoyed when I was younger, when I was getting into this stuff, it's what got me into the genre. I'm all for like hard sci-fi that's dark and contemplated and you know, all that, but that's not necessarily what I like to put out. It's not what I like to write. So Terry seemed to be on that page too. And uh, yeah, I think this is a lot of fun. If you I want like writing, escapism, this is it. I like writing interesting stories about interesting people in interesting places doing interesting things. So for for this book, like for your Empire of Bones, there's some confusion over who the main character is. You get it wrong, and it's okay. Uh, there's no confusion. You're just wrong. <laughs> so is there is there multiple main characters for this story, or is it just the uh, the ship's commander? The first book was from solely the ship's commander's point of view because the story did not lend itself to really bringing in a second point of view. After that, it's got books two and on have multiple points of view and it depends on who's most interesting and will be most involved in the stories that are being told at that point and who's going to be changed the most by what's happening. So is it told in first person or third person? Third person. And so yeah, what can you, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say that was another conversation that Terry and I had early on was, um, how do you want to write this? Because a lot of the stuff I put out is in first person. And Terry was like, I'm much more comfortable in third because I like to explore other avenues. So the compromise that we reached was that book one would be, you know, Jack's perspective. And then we would branch off in sequels and explore more of the, uh, of the narrative, more of the universe. And uh, yeah, I mean, I like the direction it's gone. So what can you tell us about the main character, aside from the fact that he's retired and sort of brought back 
um, to to a prominence role. Um, what else is there about him that makes him unique? Actually, that's not quite accurate. What happens okay. is is that he was a captain in command of a cruiser, and he reached that age where it was either be promoted or be re- forced to retire, and they were gonna they were gonna put him on the shore, and his father was a senior politician with with naval background and he pulled strings to get him command of this mothballed battleship with the hope that he could get it back into some kind of shape because he saw something coming in the future and that's what the first story was was his the main character's conflict with the existing naval structure because the commanding officer in that area did not want him there and so it was a big fight and a big struggle to deal with that. And that's a lot of what the first book was. So what uh, genre or subgenres besides obviously science fiction, would you consider the last hundred to be fit into then? Adventure. Is it, is it adventure? I was just wondering, cause it sounds like the first one has a little bit of political intrigue as well. Not really, not, not unless you count military politics. His father might be a civilian politician, but the big conflict is dealing with the existing military rank structure and the obstacles they want to put in his way. Yeah, we try to stay away from that kind of stuff because, one, I don't like politics in real life. Don't want to write about (laughs) them. Uh, Two, I I don't think that's why people are reading these books, honestly. I think they're reading it for the military part of the military sci-fi. You know, they're not... They want the action. They want the dynamic. They want on the ground, you know, boots on the ground experience. And uh, and that's where you're getting. You're getting like Jack's perspective in the war. Like, you know, he's actually doing it. You're not getting like these behind closed doors meetings and stuff too often. In the okay. later books, some of the characters that are point of view characters aren't in the military. I, I suspect it's about half and half. And the ones that aren't in the military that are having their point of view, they're bringing something to the table that feeds into the military conflict. They're helping to be a lens to look at something and to do something that's necessary to advance the story to get things that they need to continue prosecuting this war. So in your other books, Terry, you like to have that one creator, the one character that sort of is the tech guru that creates the things. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of like James Bond had and some of the other, it's like the classic, I think, you know, Q character. Did you do that with The Last Hunter? I've got a well? scientist in there that is an expert on these particular mechanical warriors that we're talking about. But I don't know that he's quite a genius in the same way that I've written the other. I do have a computer hacker. So maybe if you put those two people together, you've got the same sort of thing I've done in the past. But it's two separate people this time. Do you, do you go the same route of trying to subvert expectations with those characters as well? A little bit. I like subverting expectations. Is that something you normally do, Jeff? I've read some of your solo stuff, but there's there's a decent number of your co-written that I haven't gotten to yet. Do you like to have a certain signature character in your book that you sort of brought over for this one? Um, well, when you say brought over, what do you mean? Like the character archetype. So so Terry likes to write that that tech genius that's sort of like that Q character, but then he makes it different in his own way every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've read most of my, like if you've read Renegade Star or the Variant Saga, there's always a genius there doing cool stuff, coming up with neat ideas. 
um, the MacGuffin character who, uh, like, I think Dressler is the one in uh, Dr. Dressler. She's the one in Renegade Star. And then May is the one in uh, the first book. And they're both like geniuses. Uh, they have their own set of problems, obviously. <clears throat> Can't make like a, a God tier character. It's just boring. Um, so you have to provide conflict and flaws. But yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely done it. So one of the things I noticed about your writing, Jeff, is that you like to have a lot of, you know, the main characters a little bit irreverent so you can have a little bit of fun. Not quite breaking the fourth wall, but the characters don't take themselves too seriously. Did you did you do that with any of the characters in the Last Hunter series? Oh, yeah. I mean, you always have, like, that, that sense of humor. Um, we, you know, Terry and I have talked about it before i can't remember how long ago that was when we uh decided what kind of characters and, and like the style we wanted to go for but i remember i had mentioned uh humor has to be a big part of it and uh people need to be able to relax there needs to be moments of levity and uh you know jokes not stupid goofy stuff but just like anything else. I mean, we go to the movies and we can watch a Batman movie, but we want to hear a little bit of humor in there. And that's like as dark as it gets. So yeah, Terry, you want to touch on that? A lot of the humor that I, that I put in these, when I have those moments, it's by subverting, like we said before, the expectations of a scene and having something happen that, that they're, it's happening to them. And they're like, what, what, what are we doing now? That kind of thing. It's it's not telling jokes. It's putting them in situations that relieve the stress. Okay, so it's a release valve for the readers. Yes, that makes sense. So, were there any secondary characters that were in the Last Hunter, specifically Book One, uh, that were especially memorable to you? I like the young helmsman that we brought in on Book One because he was basically a recruit for the Navy that was forced to fly a battleship because he was the only one that had the skills to do so. And I, I particularly enjoyed that character to the point to where he's a point of view character in some of the later works. Okay. Uh, did you have a favorite secondary character uh, for this one, Jeff? No, not, I mean, I, I really like that character. Uh, Jack, Jack is still my favorite. Okay. So that's the lead character. So obviously you've got the alien invasion. Are they the bad guy for this series or is there other, like, is it the bureaucracy? Is it nature itself? What's the bad guy without spoilers for this main, for this first book? The aliens are the bad guys for this. Although I, you're saying you, you threw in the, the first book in this, in the first book, I'd say the military bureaucracy is more of the villain than, uh, than the alien invasion, because that happens they're preparing for an invasion and the invasion doesn't happen until later in the, in that first book. Okay. <gasps> Bureaucracy is always a pain in the butt, but I'm sure that's a, everyone from Genghis Khan. All, well, maybe not him, but most of the time the military complains about the red tape. So the, um, as authors, you do a lot of horrible things to your characters. So since we've been talking about the characters, <laughs> If yours met you, shut up, Elvis. If yours met you in a dark alley after all the things you did to them, how do you see that interaction p playing out? It wouldn't be good for me. So, uh, you know, you're going to come out with a liver missing. You know, they're going to chop off your head. How how bad is it going to be? How martial did you make the characters? Um, 
I, I might get shot a couple of times. It might be bad. Okay. So, um, Jeff, you know, you're, you're a little younger than Terry. You think you could, you think you could take him? Think you take the main character? Oh, the main character? I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, probably not. Uh, you know, I'm Jack's I'm not a hand to hand fighter. You probably got a good chance. Yeah, maybe. I'd have to re I'd have to get that baseball bat that I've got in there. <laughs> I'd have to run for that. Um, okay. I can tell you there are like we've got lead characters in multiple series that I'm like, yep, they, they, he he kicked my butt sideways. There's no way. So I uh I don't consider myself a well equipped fighter, so I I always uh, would probably err on the side of I've got no chance. <laughs> okay. All right. So we've talked about uh, throughout this interview how your creative process together sort of worked. But uh, when you were making this, were there any cool scenes or ideas that you had to cut from the book that, you know, even if you use them later? No, I don't I don't think that that ever happens. Sometimes we, we do have to cut stuff. Like if there's a cliffhanger ending or something like that, we'll just be like, all right, well, let's move this around, put it to book two at the start or We've had to do that a few times in the past, but not with this series so far. I mean, um, at least that I can remember, Terry. No. Yeah. None, none of that has come up either in when we're working together to set it up or during the editing process. None of that's happened. So normally, Terry, you've talked about in the past that you sort of, you know, you, you write by the seat of your pants. But when you're writing with someone, that's not always possible. So what sort of process did you guys use for this? When we were writing book one, I needed to write an outline. So I had to actually know the major beats of the story that were going to happen. And so I wrote that outline. And as the book was being written, I think I made it somewhere between a third and halfway before I started deviating from at least some of the bullet points that were on that outline, though it still ended up at the same place at the end. Okay. Um, were you surprised at some of those twists and turns, Jeff, when he sent you the first draft? No, because he was telling me as he was doing it, you know, he okay. was, he was pretty communicative, uh, like the, uh, the reenactor stuff that was, uh, I thought a really cool, I don't think that was part of the original outline, Terry. It wasn't. It's been it wasn't. I can't remember, but I don't think it was. And he came up with that and I was like, this is great. You know, it, some every every person I've worked with because I've co-written a lot and um, I have a recipe now for how I do things. But at the end of the day, the writer is always different, and they have their own quirks and preferences that um, I will have to adjust to, or we'll have to make adjustments with them. Uh, thankfully, though, Terry has been extremely accommodating and flexible throughout like the entire process. He's like one of the easiest people I've ever worked with because he's so adaptable, you know? So if my editor hits him back with some feedback, I think at one point something to do with like uh, dialogue and stuff, like the way mm -hmm. that was written, uh, he quickly made the changes and we, we got that turned around really quickly. So um, yeah, I mean, our processes seem to coalesce pretty well. And uh, yeah, I, there hasn't really been any hiccups. Okay. So in many universes, the, the setting of the story is as much a character as the protagonist and the antagonist. So what can we expect from this world that you've created? Obviously, Earth has space fleet, but more than that, what can you tell us about the world where the story is taking place? The story is taking place in a limited area of space. I, I call it the cluster. When, when the battleship actually goes to war, 
they're pretty much it inside a limited area that the aliens and he are in fighting this war, but the other Confederation naval vessels can't get there. So it's a bottle story in, written large, I guess you could say. And so I've got a number of worlds that I don't think I've ever detailed how many there are there, but it's it's limited. So do you like, for space travel, are they using faster than light travel? Are they using wormholes? Like what are we looking at for, for the tech side? For the tech side, the Confederation uses something called quantum drives, and they they built something, a network up, like star, think of them as, as stargates that only can go from one place to another single place. So you basically have these linked pair that you can take ships through and leave one solar system and arrive instantaneously in another one. The only ships that have independent quantum drives are the battleship that... Um, the hero is on and the exploration ships that originally built this, this network. So when things really get down to town, the aliens use kind of a hyperdrive that they can go about 10 times faster than the speed of light, but it still takes them time to get from place to place. So those are two different pieces of story that have to be written together for this because it's not the same sort of thing. Okay. So obviously this is a series because, you know, it says so on Amazon, there's currently four books out, but is their story done? What do we, can we expect from these characters going forward? Story is not done. The story still has quite a ways to play out and it's still unfolding. And Jeff can tell you more about where we're thinking it's going to end up, but it's, it's dynamic, I believe, depending on how well things are doing and what the story is looking like that's going to be how many stories are in it. Yeah, I mean, we've got all kinds of ideas right now. I wouldn't say anything's like cemented yet. There's nothing in stone. Um, I believe we talked about 12 books, um, 12 to 15, possibly. It really depends on um, where the story goes. I remember when I was writing Renegade Star, I had originally planned for six books. Uh, then when... Um, it took off, I was like, okay, now I can do the second arc that I planned. And at that point I had sort of decided on 15, but then when I got close to the end, I realized they needed one more book to tell the full story. Uh, that's happened with Sentence to War, it's happened with Backyard. So things expand and contract like, you know, constantly. We just don't know like where this series will end up. It could be that like Terry has a brilliant idea uh, for a final arc beyond the one that we've kind of thought about. And now we have 16 books in it, you know, or, or 22. Um, but I feel like at the end of the day, you never want to take a series beyond what feels right and natural. You never want to repeat yourself with the story tropes and uh, you don't want to write the same book over and over and over again. Cause a lot of people do that. And that's, that's just no fun. Um, it's, it can be easy money selling to the same audience over and over again. But I think at the end of the day, you get more artistic, um, you know, integrity out of telling just a good story. And at the end of the day, that's really what matters to me. So we'll end it when it feels natural, but I would, if I, if I was a betting man, I'd say like 12 to 15 books. Okay. So, Will we ever see the POV of the alien characters or will it always be the, the human-centric? You're going to see the aliens. Will they be a point-of-view character? 
Yes. So what can you tell us about the aliens without spoilers? Because obviously this is the I'm first I'm not sure that I can tell you anything about the aliens without being spoilery. The first book has basically their mechanical henchmen. They're, okay. they're basically war machines sent to fight. And when the aliens show up, what happens with them and the way that they are revealed and what's revealed about them is very spoilery. And I can't get into that. Okay, that's fair. So we've talked about the ships and the technology of that, but what about for the weapon system? Are they using chemical propellants, uh, lasers, plasma? What kind of weapons are you guys using? Lasers and missiles. Okay. Do you roll pods? I have not rolled any pods, but you know, you never know. David Weber is strong <laughs> in me. I may have to roll pods before we're done. Did you make up any alcoholic beverages for this one? I didn't. Uh, Marco Clouse is disappointed in you. Oh, that's that's not true. That's not true. I had um, a historical figure leave the Admiral like 10 cases of, of, of alcohol that was very exclusive. And so I did make up that alcohol. Oh, that's, that's good enough. We'll, we'll give you credit for that one. Um, so of all the tech that you guys invented for this universe, uh, which one would you want for your daily use? I'm, since I don't fight a war, I'm not really sure how much I would want for my daily use. Um, I would love to fly a spaceship. I, I would love to have the kind of, of small craft that they use in this war. I think that would be fun. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you just from like different series I've done. Um, obviously everybody wants their own personal spaceship. That's the whole appeal back here at Starship. Yeah. Uh, but you know, personally, uh, we had a device in one series that could change your appearance, you know, like they took a oh. personal shield and then they modified it to project a hologram of somebody else. So you could like, you know, walk in uh, as a general, you know, of a, of a base and like, you know, or whatever it was uh, at that time. This is years ago when we had this. This is in Renegade Star. Uh, and I always thought that was really cool. You know, that, that kind of thing. An AI, obviously, would be super fun. We're probably not far from that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably that. a bad thing, I think. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the way that it's going in real life is probably bad. But if I could pick something, I would pick like an AI from one of these books, uh, like Perry from Backyard or uh, Siggy from, you know, Renegade Star or whatever. I mean, we've written so many AIs now. Punch from Sense to War. These little helper AIs that really like, oh, you know, they make they, they make everything so much easier to do. I, I totally need a helper AI in this story. Now I have to figure out how I can how I can introduce new technology. Yeah. I was about yeah. to ask if you had one. Yeah, you got to get on that. We'll figure that out. But it's I, I've always said like AIs are great. They're they're like you can't kill them. It's like killing the dog. You know, people get really mad. Uh, so that's the I killed one AI in a story and people flipped out. <laughs> AI rights now. Yeah, yeah. So you can't do that. Uh, but yeah, I think I think people latch on to AIs. I think they're a lot of fun. But you have to make them unique. You know, you have give to make personality. Them, give them personality. Make them stand out. You can't just copy uh, C3PO or whatever. You have to make your own distinct AI that people like. That's memorable. You know, like Perry's a bird and has his own attitude, and you know, Siggy is much more logical and methodic, but um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I would say those two things. So you mentioned that this series has aliens. Uh, obviously, you can't give us 
on this this specific series because we don't want spoilers but how do you go about creating aliens when you do write them do you let your nightmares inspire you or do you let nature sort of guide you how do you go about creating aliens when you two write and we'll start with terry when i was thinking about this particular story i needed to come up with an alien that was both aggressive but still had something that was going to be interesting for the readers to maybe emotionally resonate with them as well. So trying to get it so you've got that kind of balance going on. You don't want to have a bad guy race that is just nothing but evil. You want to have something where you go, I maybe I can understand a little bit where they're coming from and what's driving this, even though they're doing what they're doing. What about you, Jeff? I would say for me, aliens have always been like real aliens, you know, have always been tough because they're so in like inhuman. And if we ever meet aliens in real life, chances are they're not going to resemble us. Um, now, there's theories that say, you know, maybe that's not true. Maybe we're like the ideal evolved form, bipeds. Uh, the way to communicate verbally who knows i mean we won't know till we encounter them but i've always been i've always taken the uh, the approach of like well realistically they're probably going to be super alien and they're going to be very different right uh but that's not really fun to read about because then you don't have your star wars aliens and your star trek aliens and your you know political dynamics and stuff like that so uh it doesn't make it makes you can have the scary stuff but you can also have the relatable, empathetic alien races where it's just a misunderstanding or, um, you know, their culture is just different. And I think that's a lot more interesting to explore. Sentence to War, we do that a lot. Um, there's multiple alien races in that and trying to understand and empathize with them, like figure out why they hate humans and like why they're attacking us is a key facet of that story that continuously evolves. Um, after lots of people die, you know, and that's very similar to real life. Now, the stuff that I've written in the past on my own, I typically go the firefly approach, which is like I think Joss Whedon said, humans are scary enough on their own. So he didn't include aliens at all. So like Renegade Star, there are no aliens. It's just people that have self-evolved, like they've, they've directed their own evolution. So they look alien and they act alien, but they're really at their core. They're just people in, like uh, that have gone down a completely different evolutionary path. So uh, I, I really like exploring that kind of stuff, genetic engineering and everything. But, you know, in other series, I have gone full alien like this one and sentence to war backyard, different things like that. So for this series, the last hunter series, obviously you can't answer specifics, but when you design the aliens, uh, did you start with knowing that was what they're going to be, or did you sort of create that as you evolved the story? The aliens, since the first book was written with mechanical aliens, I still had a very nebulous idea of who their backers were, the people that sent them, because I wanted the story to tell me who they were by the actions of their machines. And so as I was writing book two, once I had gotten things going in book one, I had a better idea of who they were when I actually started bringing living aliens into the picture. 
Yeah, um, I think that, you know, as the story goes on, we'll see more and more diversity, I guess you'd, you'd call it, um, on a, a, in a galactic sense. Uh, that is stakes, definitely true. Yeah, the stakes will rise just like they did after book one, and uh, we'll be exposed to more things. Um, but it's all part of this journey, and as the stakes rise so too do the enemies have to you know like mm -hmm. you can't just you can't just keep fighting the same people over and over no. again it's a little boring no uh, it's it may sound like it's going to be just the scrum the way that i described it with you know the aliens and the human humans being trapped in this one cluster but it's not that that simple the the curtain is going to be continually drawn back to reveal more that's going on behind the scenes and it's it is not going to be a very simplistic story of fighting these single group of aliens step by step. No, not, not even close. There's a lot more complexity that's taking place. That's going to be shoved upon the character and the aliens too, as well. Yeah. Um, which I'm a huge fan of personally, you know, raising the stakes and going bigger and, and, uh, you know, still being believable. Um, you know, we try to do that in, in our other series, but, it was something that Terry and I discussed at length before we even got started on this was like, where do we want the end goal? Um, how do we want this to look long-term if we do more than like a, just a few books, if this does sell well, you know, what are our potential future arcs? And uh, you know, we had all these ideas at the start of it and a lot of that has, has, has been retained. So I'm very hopeful and excited about the future of the series. Um, I don't want to give anything away about future alien species, as I'm sure Terry doesn't want to. And plus, it's the future. Anything could change. So even though I'm having to do outlining, I'm I'm still a pantser at heart, and things develop as they're going along. And the thing you never considered to be important as you're writing the story suddenly becomes critical. Okay. So do you suspect as this evolves that there's potential for a spinoff series as well? I mean, as you see this story going, or do you think this is going to be sort of a linear tale that wraps it all up? Because I know, Jeff, you've done some split-offs, some side series attached to the Renegade Star that work yeah. in the larger universe. I try to avoid spinoffs now because my experience building out a, un a shared universe of 54 books uh, was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was having to oversee every little minutia, every detail, everything. And, um, you know, I couldn't just sit back and enjoy the process anymore. Um, I was nitpicking everything to hell because that's what you have to do. You've got to keep the rules consistent. There were a few books where I wasn't as thorough as I should have been because I was a little overwhelmed at the time. And um, we've had to retroactively go back and fix those inconsistencies because the writer just didn't do the research. That's the other thing is like whoever comes on and does a spinoff with us, if we ever do one for the last hunter, if we don't do it ourselves, we have a third writer jump in because remember, if you do a spinoff, it's either you doing it or a, a new co-writer. And if it's a new, if it's you doing it, well, that's another last hunter book that you're not writing. So like that was my problem with Renegade star. It's like, I'm, I was on book. Like I think, seven when I brought on the first co-writer and I'm like over here trying to get my words down every day 
and I'm overseeing this co-writer. And um, like I said, at one point, uh, we had a co-writer who just hadn't done the reading I told him to do. And he was trying to do a spinoff in the universe. And we still did it, but I had to fix and rewrite so much stuff. So I try to avoid that for that reason. Even a good writer, if the research isn't done properly, you're going to end up reconfiguring that whole book. It's just no fun. When I started, when I did the first co-writing gig with Glenn Stewart, uh, he approached me to take a a novel he wrote in college and to kind of rewrite it and expand it and bring it to life. And that was an incredibly intensive process because it had to stay true to his vision while turning one novel into two. And that was something that was very daunting, although it was a lot of fun to do. And it was successful enough that we wrote three more books in, in the, in the series following that together. But I'm not sure that that it, that is so much work to work with somebody else working so intimately hand in hand, where it's somebody else's creative um, juices running for the main storyline where you're having to write in that he had to go ahead and, and take me and say, no, we, we need to shift this a little bit this way. We need to do this thing there. There's a lot of work that has to go into that kind of relationship. Yeah. And it's, in my opinion, it's not necessarily really worth it um, unless you take the time to write out an entire Bible of your universe. And like a lot of Renegade Star at the time, it was just all up here. And, uh, and I, cause I had just written all these books back to back. So everything was in my head and, um, you really had to read the books to get the lore. And if you weren't doing that, man, did it add extra work. So that's why with, with all of my co-writers now, my partners, I just prefer to keep everything separate. So when I was thinking about spinoffs, I just meant like at, at some point in time, this nat- series will come to a natural conclusion. At the end of that, would you want to play more in the universe with side stories that you might write together? But you guys have done so much co-writing. It never even occurred to me that, hey, they might actually to do that, bring someone else on. So that's yeah, an interesting, yeah. you know, sort of mindset shift. Yeah, that a lot of people yeah. don't have to worry about. I think that once the series is over, it really just depends on fan demand if we ever explore something like that, because I wouldn't be opposed to putting out like a trilogy about, you know, a a different character and another story in that universe. But uh, you also have to think about, is the audience big enough to support that? Does the story justify its own existence? Um, And if it does, then write it. But if you're just doing it because you want to milk that a little bit more, that IP, then it's not really worth it. So, like I said, we have to really wait and see, like, where the story goes and uh, what we we develop. Mm -hmm. When I was doing, when I've got 14 books in the Empire of Bones saga, and I'm not done with it yet. I've still got, I've got to find time somewhere in the future to write more in there. But I wrote another series, the Imperial Marine Saga, set in the same universe 500 years earlier. And I could see something like that if I wasn't trying to write them both at the same time. Yeah. If, if I had, I, I have a limited amount of time that I can write and trying to upkeep multiple plot lines of stories that are set in the same universe would be a stress for me because we want to reduce, we want to publish last hundred books in a reasonable time frame. Yeah. Um, I know 
I, I talked to Terry Maggard a lot and he's my, my co-writer on backyard starship. And that dude's got like a billion ideas going in his head constantly. And he's like, what, you know, we, we should do this series. We should do this. And I'm like, let's just do this for right now and focus on this. Uh, let's just do backyard. But he's like, he's constantly writing little short stories, spinoffs and stuff. And those are, you know, those fans love that stuff. Um, Terry Mixon, he, he wrote a prequel short story and you can get that on Amazon and uh, the audio book you can get. We, we did an exclusive thing, uh, audio short for that on our website. But in terms of like spinoff series, Terry Maggart was like, hey, what if we did a, The Messenger and we wrote it 500, I think it was like three or 400 years later. Um, it could be this whole other epic story. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. We should totally do that in like two years. <laughs> <laughs> after we're done with this uh you know but he's like he loves the idea and i'm like this sounds really cool and amazing and i could totally see us doing this but like how do you find the time i mean like he's over there writing thousands of words a day and i'm over here doing this and like juggling all these co-writes and i'm writing my own thing and you know uh and terry mixon here he's he's busy as, as hell too so that's the other problem unless you're working like 12 hours a day you just don't and, and you having to juggle all that lore in your head. Uh, so maybe maybe down the road after we finish this, maybe we'll do that, set it a, a couple hundred years yeah. later. That's that's something that we can definitely look at when the story is complete. As it is, writing as it is. I, I am the husband of a disabled. My wife is disabled, so I've got real life things that I have to do with that. It's, I am, I like writing. I enjoy writing. But sometimes, you know, it's hard I'm, I'm not Terry Maggard. I can't write as fast as Terry does. And I do my darndest to go ahead can. and meet a very demanding schedule that I impose on myself. And I feel guilty when I don't make that. Yeah. Um, a big I don't want to add part, anything to it to make it worse. A big part of my job, um, just so the listeners know, is uh, you know to supporting Terry, so uh, Terry Mixon and Terry Maggard, I, I suppose, uh, to be able to write as much as they can. Because you know, uh, variant picks up all of the back end work of getting the cover done and the audio and the editing and all that stuff so that Terry can sit here and just do what he does best and write, write the last hunter. Um, because everybody's busy and we all have stuff going on. Um, and you know, none of us want to sit there and work 16 hours a day. Like a lot of writers have to, to juggle all that stuff. Okay. That's also why I don't take on 15 co-writers, you know, because like I just yeah, want like, time. Where would, where would you find the time to write your own stuff if you had exactly. too many co-writers? Yeah. At one point in time, you did have that like tons going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was getting it was getting overwhelming. Um, I mean, JR saw it firsthand because we were talking about co-writing together and, uh, you know, which is still on the table, of course, obviously, but because um, JR is awesome. But it was, it was a, there was a point where I was just like, we can't keep doing this. I was working 16 hours a day, 15 hours a day, and all I was doing was overseeing these different projects. Uh, but thankfully, we scaled way back, and now we have a really good system in place that, um, you know, lifts up creativity and uh, provides like flexibility with different writers. And like, we can tell like the, the best stories possible, get the best covers possible, get the, you know, industry leading narrators like Kafer, RC Bray, 
uh, Luke Daniels, Mark Boyette, all these guys, um, which wasn't something we could do before. So I really like where we're at now because I can actually write. Indeed. So clearly this interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about the last hunter or the last hunter series um, that you wanted to tell us before we wrapped up that I didn't ask? No, I think no, you covered right. it pretty well. Right. Go buy the book guys, please. So is the last hunter in reference to the name of the ship in question, the battleship that they're on? Is it yeah. in reference to the captain? What, where did you get the title? Terry, the ship's name is Delta Orionis which is named after a star in Orion's belt, Orion the Hunter. And okay. so the class of the battleships is the Hunter class. So I got I got the name from that. I, I forget how we came up with the name The Last Hunter. We tossed so many names of potential titles around. I don't even remember how we settled on that. Oh, I can, I can tell you. So uh, we were talking about different titles and uh, nothing was sticking. You know, you always, you know when you hear it that it's going to be right. And so... Um, I remember Terry was telling me about the ship class and I was like, just call it the last hunter. It's the last one. <laughs> it just made I sense. Like as soon as he told me that I'm like, yeah, they, there's the title right there. So, so I'll, I happen to know, cause you know, I know who the audience is listening is that several of the people that listen are families that listen together. They read together. Cause we've sort of targeted our audience at fellow readers and, and audiobook listeners, as opposed to just other authors. So for those families that are listening, what age range would you say this book was appropriate for, this series specifically? I don't know that it would be really appropriate for really young kids because there is combat. There is, there is some ground elements of combat and there I don't go gory or anything like that, but people die on screen. And so I don't know that I'd go there, but PG-13 and up, I think probably is fine. Yeah, I think it's good for teens. It's in that same ballpark as like Old Man's War or The Forever War. Um, I would say it's a little more mature than Ender's Game um, because these are adults fighting. This isn't, it's not YA. Um, it's definitely, you know, adult oriented. Uh, it's geared for people, I'd say over the age of 15. Yeah, that's probably better than PG-13. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, dear listener, as we, we wrap this up, uh, we'd like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And it also helps uh, the authors know, hey, people are really digging this. Maybe we keep going. So, you know, the, the commercial aspect of publishing being what it is, you have a part to play in helping your series that you absolutely adore keep going. So do your part. And it, rumor has it that on the uh, on the hundredth review for every hundred reviews, the authors get a unicorn that they can make steaks out of. So, you know, there's mm, that unicorn steaks. Uh, but you probably put ketchup on yours, you weirdo. Oh, ketchup is awful. Don't even talk to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> just a note, just a note to everybody. Um, audiobook number two comes out soon. It's uh, I think it's up on pre-order now on Amazon and Audible. It's on our website. <laughs> Uh, and already, <clears throat> and uh, we're working on book four right now, which comes out early August. Outstanding. All right, Jeff, can you tell readers and listeners how they can uh, find you on the internet? Yeah, uh, you can go on Facebook and join Jane Cheney's Renegade Readers, which Terry Mixon and I and all of my co-writers are in, and we are all very active. We answer questions in there. 
that's the best way to speak to us directly. You can also find me at jnchaney.com or you can reach me at jnchaney at jnchaney.com. All right. And what about you, Terry? How can listeners find you online? And as usual, dear listener, everything will be in the show notes. Yep. You can find me on Amazon, Terry Mixon. I'm the, I'm the science fiction author there. You can find me at terrymixon.com and you can find me on Facebook. Those are the places I am. All right. And you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast where we share these episodes with you. Um, if you, if you go there to find them, you can also leave comments on the Facebook page. And uh, <clears throat> if it's anything insightful, I'll, I'll bug Terry and Jeff and they'll come on over and potentially answer you. Um, you can join us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can also support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. And if you speaking of support, you can support us over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. But uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the aforementioned Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Handley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.